show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and we have an amazing show tonight. I mean, this this show has been like years in the making. You know, I've been trying to uh, meet up with John McLellan like two or two and a half years ago, I think it was. And then COVID hit, and uh, you know what happened after that, but a million shit. But anyway, John McLellan is, is law enforcement... Um, I don't know how to explain it. I guess he's gold. Law enforcement gold. That's a good word to it because yeah. he was involved in, in the, the firefight with the terrorists, the Zanayev brothers, after the Boston Marathon in uh, April of 2013. And when I talk about a firefight, not only was guns involved, there were bombs, there were pipe bombs. These guys, you know, when you talk about cops going above and beyond the line of duty, it was amazing. A little tiny police department like Watertown, you know, and politicians, let's defund the police, you know. Here's these guys, a little tiny 60-man police department. They have the balls of a fucking mountain lion, you know, and they take on these two terrorists and they face down bombs and a firefight like you wouldn't believe. And that's what we have in this country, law enforcement that stands up, risks their life for people they don't know, and they put it all on the line. Well, you know, I, I'm getting carried away. I don't want to get that carried away with this. Before I go on, I want to introduce my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? Phil, uh, Bill, I'm doing really good, and I am very excited tonight. And I know I say that most nights, but this is a tremendous panel of guests. Like you said, uh, heroic. Uh, the word gold fit definitely. Uh, it, it's just... I can't wait to get into it and hear the stories. You know, I was trying to think of the word law enforcement royalty. That's what I meant. But gold That's fits it. Gold fits well. Anyway, let me in- introduce the guest. At the, uh, right next to me at the top is um, eight-time novelist, author, screenwriter, Michelle McPhee. Michelle, it's so great to have. She wrote the book, Mayhem, that deals with the Boston Marathon bombing and the, the investigation and the prosecution. Unbelievable book. And if you haven't read it, you need to get that book because it tells the inside story. Welcome to the show, Michelle. It's so great to be on. And McPhee is just fine with cops. That's I think I think uh, Sandra McClellan would agree. That's pretty much universal with with law enforcement all over Massachusetts, New York, and now a little bit in L.A. And I, I love. Listen, I cannot say enough about John. And it's funny because how I met Cliff is because he was in a diner in New York City. And, and you know, I was living, I thought it was a big shock because I'm living on Mulberry, right in front of the gun store on Main <laughs> Street, you know, Mulberry and Grand. And Jovino's. there's a little diner there. Yeah, it was fantastic. And Cliff walked in with a Watertown 
sweatshirt, a Watertown PD sweatshirt. And he goes, no, I played, I played the sergeant, the Watertown sergeant. And I go, no. <laughs> I couldn't even believe it. I was like, this is, and this is before Patriots Day came out. So this was like a huge honor. Two of my favorite people now on one panel, but two of the greatest detectives in the world. I mean, I feel like I'm with law enforcement royalty with a phenomenal actor and comedian thrown in. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. And and I want to tell a quick story of how I met Cliff Moylan. Seven years ago, about maybe longer than that, seven years ago, Cliff and I took a stand-up comedy class for eight weeks together. And I I had learned by taking the class with him, he was also an actor. And uh, I stayed with stand-up for like six years. I stopped doing it when, once this podcast took off and COVID hit. So I'm, the podcast has taken much of my time up. But that's how I met Cliff. And then when I saw Cliff had one of the greatest lines that you could ever say in motion picture history, and at least for me, because in the terrorist attack, when he played Sergeant John McClellan, and I don't know if this really happened, but Cliff said in the movie, and pardon my French, all of our subscribers, he said, welcome to Watertown, motherfucker. And I was like, wow, what a line to say. That is so great. Cliff Moylan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's great because, I, you know, when I found out that you knew Sergeant McClellan, that, that the connection was there, and I was just, it, it was just cemented the whole thing. Anyway, without further ado, I want to get into this the story, and obviously we can't tell the whole story of the Boston Marathon bombing because it would take you know eight or ten hours. But one of the most amazing things about this is what I'm going to show. I'm going to show a little video of it right now, and it was the firefight that this hero in the bottom left got into. And I'm going to uh, put this on the screen, and we'll watch a, a little bit of this. And he can after it, he's going to tell us what, from his perspective, what the hell happened. My pistol ran out of ammo. I had to reload. He was still shooting. I reloaded. It turned out I emptied my pistol at him. There's explosions and gunfire going on down the street. He just sees eyes, powerful dynamite type. I thought we were going to die. I mean, I truly, truly thought that we were going to die. The first we're getting an update. There may be uh, guns in the vehicle. You say this was the, the street. Sergeant John McClellan closes in with another Watertown officer, Joey Reynolds, just ahead of him. I come around the corner and the uh, bad guy's out, arms fully stretched out. Reported shots fired at officers trying to stop the vehicle. Shooting at the, at the windshield of uh, Officer Reynolds' cruiser. Shots fired at Watertown police officers. The bad guy switches from Joey to me and takes one shot and puts it right through the middle of my windshield from about 100 120 feet away. We need assistance immediately. Shots fired again. Shots fired again. We have three units responding. So I, I stood here. I said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I jumped up, threw it in drive, and I just jumped down right here, and I was following it. I was The, the, the car's moving. car's moving, and I'm following it like this and just shooting right in between here using the door as cover. So I probably took 12, 15 steps with the vehicle and saw the, saw the uh, tree 
I shut the door. I ran to the tree. And they think someone's in it the whole time. So you, you could see them shooting at it. You can see them throwing the bombs at it. And I'm like, I, I was like, Jesus, this is working. I'm like, I can't believe it. Now a third Watertown officer, Sergeant Jeff Fuglase, responds. And uh, I fired three or four shots. I was positive I was hitting him, but he wasn't going down. In more than three decades on the force, neither man had ever fired his weapon in action until this night. Who, who did you hit? Tamela. Tamela. Did yeah. he keep shooting? He came charging up the street, uh, shooting at me. So we're about six feet apart. We ran up that driveway. You're shooting each other? Yes. Six, seven feet apart? Yeah. I emptied my pistol at him. And in the meantime, his pistol ran out of ammunition. I didn't know if it jammed at the time or what. And he kind of looked at his gun, looked at me, got frustrated, threw the gun, hit me in my left bicep. He turned, he ran down back onto the street, took a left, I chased after him, and I probably leapt about four or five feet in the air and came down on the shoulders and tackled him. He had eight bullets in him, and he was still fighting us. The only I had was my empty gun, and I pistol whipped him. I was trying to knock him out. I, I hit him as hard as I could, 10, 12 times. Um, couldn't knock him out. The younger Zardinayev, now back in the Mercedes, runs over his brother just missing Fuglase. And I'm laying there and I saw the front wheels go over Tamil and I saw him bounce up and underneath the undercarriage a couple of times. I saw him get hung up in the rear wheels and get dragged 20, 25 feet. All officers responded. We have one body pinned down and we have another one on the line, shots fired. And all we saw was taillights at that point. Police fired as he fled. They missed him, but a ricochet wounded a transit police officer who had responded to the scene. Once other agencies started showing up, they said to us, do you know who you have here? And we said, a couple of guys that hijacked a car. And he goes, no, no. Do you know who you got? These are the Boston Marathon bombers. And I'm like, what? I'm like, how, how do you know that? He's like, we've been chasing them all night. These are, these are them. These are the guys. I'm like, so is this black hat or is this white hat? Who's the dead guy? I mean, is this bigger than... You know, John, I feel like I got to do this. <laughs> Amazing, man. I feel like if there was a crowd that watched this, they should give you a standing ovation. Un yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. John, I'm so much want to hear your perspective. When you watch this, first of all, before we get into it, how does it make you feel? Uh, it's funny, Bill. I, I I don't think I saw that since it it aired years ago. And, um, geez, it is, it is kind of surreal. You know, it's funny. It's... Um, you know, it's just part of my life and, and, and I don't look at it like that. It was just like kind of a night on the job, just like you guys, you know, um, just so happened who they were and um, how it shook out, how long the gunfight was and how, you know, that just, they had uh, pipe bombs with them that uh, thank God they didn't make it down to New York city with, because it was, I mean, you know, John, John, can I, can I just set the stage and I'm not going to give you the whole screen and I want you to tell the story prior to this, they killed a police officer from MIT. Is that, that correct? They executed him actually. And the, the point was that they were trying to steal his firearm and they right. were, they weren't able to get his firearm, but they executed this 27 year old officer, uh, Sean Collier, right? 
And then, and then after that, they carjacked a Mercedes of a young Asian man. And they, yeah. they showed up in Watertown with the Honda belonging to Zokar Zanayev and the carjacked Mercedes. I set the scene now. You got the, you got the whole screen, buddy. Okay. So, um, you know, that, that night, um, was, it was a very, uh, crazy night because I, I was woken up by my wife told that there was a police officer shot in Cambridge. We didn't know, uh, what the details were, but this was Sean Collier who was assassinated by these two cowards. Um, they assassinated him trying to get his weapon, um, he had a triple retention holster. So they tried, they tr- they got in there, they, they shot him th- three or four times and his, his gun belt was up under his uh, armpits because they were trying to work that gun up and they couldn't get it out. So thank God, um, uh, even in death, he was a hero because the, every bullet they had with his gun, that would have been another bullet that they could have sent down our, you know, down our way. And, um, you know, a lot of Watertown police officers, a lot of a lot of police officers from all over the area were very lucky that night. I, I don't think it could happen ever again and not have one of us get shot or one of the bombs kill us. You know, so um, we were very lucky. They, they came into Watertown. We were told by dispatch right away they were following. They would uh, the Chinese gentleman uh, that that was carjacked knew his his uh, number to his vehicle and they tracked his number. He gave the number right to the police officers and they were able to track the vehicle and they were giving it to us in real time. So uh, he, he was a, he was another hero. Got us there very quickly. Um, and the, the, as, as I turned around the corner, Joe Reynolds was w- made the best tactical move of his lifetime. Uh, instead of engaging these guys, he put it in reverse, got underneath that engine compartment and 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 put it in reverse and came right back past me um, with all the bullet holes in the front of his car and in the windshield. I couldn't believe he wasn't hit, but he wasn't. He got out. He joined the gunfight with me. Um, it was me and him for about the first three minutes. They threw four or five pipe bombs at us. Um, the vehicle took a lot of it. The vehicle took a lot of the, the, the pipe bombs landed on the other side of the vehicle, the first three, and uh, took a lot of the percussion away from us. Um, it was a long, long gunfight. And then we had other police officers coming to help us. And uh, it, we were very lucky. We were very lucky to have uh, the help that we got that night. We were a very small department. We only had four officers on that night. Um, so to call for help. And to have people, you know, we had SWAT guys in our department, in our town and within 15 minutes because they were pulling posts in Boston at the at the marathon bombing. They were still FBI agents, Boston cops, Boston SWAT guys. They were all still pulling posts in Boston. They came right out. They were 10 minutes away. So we were, uh, you know, we did a good job. Uh, my guys did a great job. But I, I have to thank every single police officer that showed up that night. They were the true unsung heroes. You know, all the medals I got and everything, all the medals we got in the Watertown, that's all for them. They all John, John can, can you go into a bar within 100 miles of Boston and have to pay for a drink? <laughs> I would certainly hope not. <laughs> and if I ever do, you call me up and I'll give you my credit card. I'm paying for your drink. That's right. Cliff Moylan. 
How did Cliff, how did it make you feel to play a part of a man like this? It's hard to sum up in a sentence or two. I mean, I I don't know. You kind of put me on the spot. Humans as a species need purpose. You know, without purpose, we're, you know, we get depressed. We get aimless. And John's purpose that day was to defend Watertown, Boston, and, you know, the United States of America. And that gave me purpose in portraying him. Um, And I could not be prouder. I... I mean, we have a, a bond that will last as long as both of us are alive. I love him like family. And um, there was a decision he made uh, when he ran out of bullets that I thought was the most admirable thing I've ever heard in my entire life. He was stuck behind a tree with no bullets, and he probably had a conversation with himself saying, am I going to die behind this tree with no bullets? Or am I going to take this empty gun and do my very best to bang the shit out of Tamerlan and Sarnayev. And he uh, he ran, what, 30, 40 feet with an empty gun and just clocked him with it. And, you know, that provided an entire nation of safety. And I applaud you. You know something? One of the things that many people that don't know about the Boston Marathon bombing is that the Zarnayev brothers' intention was to come to Manhattan, to come to Times Square. Had they not engaged with Watertown, they would have killed... Hundreds of people probably in Times Square in New York. And these guys saved that from happening. Cliff, you made a point just now. You brought something that John didn't uh, reveal, that he ran out of bullets. And I was thinking that when, when John, when you were saying that the gunfight lasted for at least three minutes before uh, before anybody else came, it was between you and Reynolds. And I'm saying, I know, you know, in New York, we would carry – a full magazine in the Glock is like 13 and one is 14. And then two backup clips is normal. And maybe a second gun. Most times when I was in uniform, I would carry, always carried a second gun. Uh, even when I was a detective, if we were going out for somebody bad, I always had a backup gun, but uh, that was going through my mind that you were running out. That it sounded like they had plenty of ammunition and hurling bombs at you. And just by the way, that, that tactical move, of walking with the car mm-hmm. and then that was brilliant. That was brilliant. That was unbelievable because bullets aren't usually, unless it's a small tree, they're not passing through the tree. And then it made a distraction where they started to fire on the car, let them waste some ammunition on that. And then they uh, did they actually throw bombs at the moving car, John? Yeah, they did. The first two, um, were, were, the percussion was taken by the uh, by the expedition. so lucky and another one of them out of the five when they threw it it rolled on the wick and and put itself out so it never went out when never went off so i i mean just the 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 unbelievable luckiness that we had along with you know shit luck too but we you know that night we were very lucky uh, some some stuff happened that still makes me shake my head saying i know my my dad was moving me around like a chess piece from heaven. You know, he was, oh, you don't want to be there, brother. You move over here. You, know, you don't want to be here. You know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll never, you know, there's, there's no way anyone can ever say anything other than that to me. I, I was I was being moved around by the hand of God. You That's amazing. Had a That's angel that you know, Michelle, Michelle McPhee, uh, this is your book, Mayhem. And uh, I want to thank you for sending me and, and Phil Grimaldi and Cliff Moylan a copy of that. I got through like 99% of it. I didn't read like the very last chapter, but 
It's a quite a, an amazing book. You track the whole investigation. You probably are the expert on the Boston Marathon bombing. If there is an expert in this world, it's got to be you. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, first thing I want to say is the Watertown that night, and Cliff, I love that you brought up the fact that he was out of bullets, ran, and, and people forget, Tamlin was a maniac. He was six foot four, all muscle. He was a Golden Gloves champ twice in the heavyweight division. Uh, he was he was an MMA fighter. This kid was an animal. In fact, when they finally got him in, the, he was still alive. Puglisi shot him nine times. John beat the hell out of him with a pistol whipped him. The guy is like, he gets run over and scalped by his own brother who dragged him at least 30 feet. I mean, one of the amazing things, Ron, I don't know if you remember, is that somebody took the blood stain of Tamerlan being dragged down Dexter and turned it into an American flag with chalk. So they wrote USA at that wow. blood stain with, at the spot where oh, he died. Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh, it was beautiful. It said USA. And then, you know, the, the the that night was absolute havoc. But the, you know, I love that you said you had to be moved around by the hand of God because it truly is a miracle. Tamlin was coming straight at you. The people described it to me as he had clearly been trained in a military style because he just walked straight into the path of gunfire like somebody who knew what he was doing. You know, um, these bombs that... Now, these weren't just pipe bombs. Two of them were pressure cooker bombs the, that were almost identical. One was smaller. One was the same size as the ones that were detonated that caused that kind of carnage. And these bombs are thrown at these police officers. It is a, extraordinary. No one was killed. John is a thousand percent right. But the bombs were so powerful. I remember one of them was embedded in the side of a Toyota Camry that was parked on the street, like completely took out the door. Another piece of bomb flew into a little kid's hockey net. You know, the uh, the cruiser that John mentioned took a big, huge chunk of this explosion. It truly was like, a, like you know, look, we've written about a lot, or I have written about a lot of heroic actions in New York, the NYPD. I could tell you a million stories, just as brave. I'm sure Phil and Bill, I know you guys have been in scenes that are just as chaotic. You know, we were all there on 9-11. But there is something to be said, just to go back, Bill, to how you opened the show. There is something to be said about law enforcement. And this is the true story. It doesn't matter what the narrative across the country is now. Anyone who's been around cops, as much as we all have, know that this is the norm. This is not the, this is not just, this is extraordinary work. And Watertown was, we're superheroes that night, truly. But this is, Guys like John are out there every single solitary day doing work. And and his tactics were extraordinary, but I agree with him. I think that there's something about how there was almost a spiritual element at work. That you, know, you know, Michelle, 100%. And when I saw, like, John um, thinking while he was obviously scared about the tactics, using the car to put it in drive and go along and, and shoot with them, I mean, that's that's brilliant. And that's like something you would expect from a guy maybe that was uh, in a bunch of shootings. It's This was his first shooting. And he, he was trained, obviously trained very well. I think uh, at the time, what, John, you probably had like 22, 23 years on the job at the time? Yes, yeah. And you, I think, yeah. well, you, you finished, you, you retired when you had almost 30, right? 30, yeah. I did 30 wow. and retired in May of last year, yeah. That, that's year, that's amazing. And you know something? You go through a career and – uh, up until that point, you had never been in a shooting, and you 
you were brilliant. You know, you and that, that other sergeant, was it Reynolds? No, who, Reynolds was the officer that was with John. Oh, uh, uh, Parisi, was that his name? Puglisi, yeah. That guy was tough as shit, man. He goes after that guy without even thinking twice. Out no more rounds, he tackles the guy. Yeah. And the guy shot nine times. He's still fighting. I mean, if I can add to that, that, if I if I can add to that, which sure. uh, it, it has to be said, I took the keys from him. That 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 officer, <clears throat> he was <clears throat> sixty one years old at the time. Sixty years old at the time. He had worked from seven a.m. to three o'clock on a detail, and then three o'clock to midnight on his shift. He was in his in his minivan sitting out in the parking lot smoking a cigar going home because he had another detail the next morning he heard us getting out with this car thought it was just a carjack vehicle and he said you know what <clears throat> there's only three cars out in the street i'm gonna head that way just in case you know i can pull up on them on the minivan and we can we can lock these kids up and i can help these guys out that's not a guy collecting a check that's, no, that that's that's, that's, that's a real, real cop Yep. Was he off. actually was he actually off duty, John? Off duty. Yeah, that's off amazing. Up. That's amazing. He has, he has a funny story about Sergeant Puglisi too. So remember, thank God Dick Donahue is alive. But we had a cop that nearly he bled completely out of all of his own blood, and it was only cops that donated blood that saved his life. But I think John, you probably have a better recollection of this. But he's holding Tamlin. He almost just got run over. You know, and he was holding him. And now he's got this guy who was scalped and he's still bleeding out. And the ambulance that he thought was coming for Tamalin goes right by him to go pick up Dick Donahue. So he's alone with this still struggling perp, still Tamalin's an eye of. And he told me this funny story that his wife called and he was like, I can't talk right now. I just shot <laughs> You know, I've been in situations like that. Like, why do you answer the phone? You know what I mean? But you're like, still, you're like, why did I answer this damn phone after answer to my wife? I'm in a shooting, you know? <laughs> maybe maybe he wanted to let her know that he was okay. Because that sounds yeah. like it was two minutes in. Maybe she heard something. And, and uh, John, I just got to ask you this. I was in two active shootings myself early in my career, right? Right after I came out of the police academy was one. And the second one was a few years later. For me, I felt like instincts just immediately kicked in the training. And I think just common sense sort of kicked in. Is that what happened for you when that whole firefight went down? Did you just go into autopilot? I feel that. I mean, I people ask me, why did you do this? How did you do that? Why did you do this? And to me, it, 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 there was no other way to do it. So, I, I mean, I, to me, it's got to be the training. Um, they were unbelievable. You know, Massachusetts has very good training for police officers. We, we do a lot of training and stuff like that. But, um, again, I, I, training was a lot to do with it. But, I mean, I did stuff that I, I, I don't know why I did it. So, it, to me, again – it really, really came from somewhere else. You know, I mean, it, it didn't, it, it didn't was divine, I know that. <laughs> divine intervention, right? Yeah. yeah. I, think, I, mean, I think for dad. me, for me, I think survival instinct kicks in and then your training kicks in and just your, you know, the knowledge of everyday life, street knowledge or whatever. That's the way I felt. And it all happened so quick that it kind of seems like it goes slow in a way too. You know what I mean, John? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like everything slows down and the onset, like for me, it slowed down for a second and then you just did things without even thinking, you know? 
Yeah. Yep, Can I say yep. something to, for the viewers that are watching this that might not be familiar with Watertown? Sure. This is not Detroit. When a police right. officer suits up that day, they're not thinking of getting in the gunfight. Yeah, that's for it sure. It is a very sleepy, low crime area. So for you to adjust from ho hum, here's another night on you know on the job to okay. <laughs> gunfight. Yeah. I need this, I need to pull out my gun. I mean, I, I applaud you for that too. I mean, that must have been pretty shocking to you know walk into that. You thought you were pulling over a carjacker, which alone in Watertown is a big deal. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and again, but it's not anything that uh, uh, any police officer in any town, whether it's a huge town or a small town, you know, it, it, they that's what they're facing every day. You know, they're they're facing that, and you just gotta, you know, I I just hope that. You know, I, I pray that they, they make the right decisions. You know, I, I, I hope that everybody makes the right decisions because it's a right now it's hard. I mean, I, I, you know, I feel bad for anyone who's been in a shooting and, and they must be shaking in their boot. Are they going to relook into this? And like, I'm, I mean, I'm afraid that they're going to come back at me and say, hey, you did something wrong. We, you know, we're going to haul you off. You know, I'm like, that's not going to happen, John. I'm like, I, I doubt that. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, you know folks. This is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you uh, like this channel, uh, we give you stuff from a police perspective. Uh, go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. If you want to support us on Patreon, Patreon, we have a Patreon where you can uh, become a member. We also have a YouTube membership. Uh, we have five levels. You can be the bucket. You can be coffee with cannon. You can polish my rack. You can be dipped in butter, or you could be heated dipped in butter. They're all they're they're all different levels of being members. In in essence, heated dipped in butter costs forty nine ninety nine a month, but that's another story because you got heated butter you dipped in. So it's a it's a funny story. But anyway, folks, we're bringing you these real stories of real cops and from a police point of view. And as I said earlier on the show, I was trying to get John McClellan like two years ago, two and a half years ago. That was when we were doing it in the studio. And my buddy, Cliff Moylan here, who also happens to be a native Bostontonian. I think that's probably redundant. If you say you're a Bostontonian, you don't need to put the word native in front of it. But Cliff is a Bostontonian. And you can see he's Irish as uh, as uh, St. Paddy's Day. And uh, Cliff, I always wanted to ask you, they are lower mills. <laughs> I always oh, wanted to ask you, <laughs> Cliff, I always wanted to ask you, you know, when our city was attacked on 9-11 we obviously took that personal as new yorkers how did you feel as a boston native when these guys attacked the boston marathon with these bombs i'm gonna try to say this with a sense of humility but um on the one hand it's an absolute tragedy my father was two blocks away from where the bomb went off where the bombs went off but on the other hand i knew that i mean Boston people have a way of policing themselves. The, the Sarnia brothers are kind of lucky that the cops got to them first. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's the wrong city to fuck with. I'm, I, I say that with humility, but I say that with certainty. I like and, that. Um, you I, know, I, it, it was, it pulled I, my heartstrings. I, I was, you know, on the edge of my seat watching, you know, wanted to know every little detail while they were looking for the Boston Marathon bombers. But, um, it's Boston, dude. You know, there's some some neighborhoods you don't even want to litter in. Yeah. <laughs> They'll get you. 
Like, well, there, there's there's pride. There's pride in being a Bostonian. There's pride in your city, and it's uh, Bostonian. Bostonian. I'm a I'm a New Yorker. I don't know that shit. <laughs> but uh, no, Billy, but I mean, listen, I want to give a little background because we're talking about the we're talking about the shooting when they were captured. But there's people on the channel in other countries that may not know. Just a quick. Uh, kind of a rundown on April 15, 2013 at about 2.49 p.m., right at the uh, finish line of the uh, Boston Marathon, uh, there were two bombs set off about 14 seconds apart, two pressure cooker bombs that killed three people, uh, injured 265 people, and 17 of those injuries, people lost limbs. So it was a heroic, uh, horrific, horrific scene. Uh, the manhunt went from the 15th, uh, until the, the shooting uh, happened on the 18th, and then I believe on the 19th is when the second brother was captured. The shooting that we talked about with, uh, with John was on the, uh, on the 18th, late in the evening, and uh, he was captured. The, the second brother, uh, Zokar, was captured hiding in a boat, uh, a covered-up boat that was in someone's uh, alleyway, I guess. Uh, that was later on on the uh, on the 19th. So just for people who don't know about the Boston Marathon bombing, that's just a little uh, insight into what took place. Uh, there was an, a joint FBI, ATF, Drug Enforcement Administration, Central Intelligence Agency, and the National Counterterrorism Center all joined, as well as the local law enforcement. And I really believe that the Boston Police Department really took the lead on it. So there was a lot of law enforcement in the manhunt to try and uh, capture these guys and bring them to justice. Uh, the police and law enforcement, obviously, the heroics of uh, of John here today are, are, are on display. And you know what he did and, and what uh, the other officers that were with him did. But I'm sure there was a lot of <clears throat> investigating done by all of those agencies and uh they were, uh, uh, the brother was successfully tried in court and, uh, he was given the death sentence. I believe now the death sentence has been, uh, placed aside until another jury hears the case, but, uh, he was found guilty. And I believe about 30 counts or something to that effect. So, uh, that's, you know, I just wanted, I just wanted to mention one thing, Michelle, about the investigation. And I was watching a video very recently and, um, they had the pictures of them, the Zarnayev brothers placing these pressure cooker bombs at two different locations. And the FBI uh, made a decision not to put it out there. For, for what reason? I, I, I mean, I didn't, when I saw that, I totally disagreed with that decision. And they actually uh, had Eric Holder and ran it by him. What does he know about fighting crime, Eric Holder? He was the attorney general, but that I wouldn't have a guy like him making the decision. But you got a picture of the bombers, and and by not putting their picture out there, guess who you're endangering? John McClellan and other police agencies that don't know these are the guys. These are the terrorists. So whoever was making that stupid FBI decision, and I'm sorry to trounce the FBI, but I think that was a dumb decision. Get the damn picture out there. We think these are the perps that did the bombing. Well, what I'll say to that, Bill, is that, you know, there were a lot of good FBI agents out there that slept in their cars and drove in from all over the country and, you know, did the job. Um, but there were police officers who said if the FBI had been cooperative with the information and, and obviously 
there's a long history of no love lost between the FBI and local law enforcement. It goes back to Whitey Bulger and Mark Rossetti and, and other cases where the local law enforcement felt like they were usurped or undermined or sometimes thwarted entirely by actions of some of the FBI agents. In this particular case, Ed Davis spoke about it on my podcast and said that those photos were in hand on Tuesday and that a decision was made at the highest levels of Department of Justice to not release them. And he snapped and said, I want to know who made that decision, because if somebody gets hurt, then I'm going to go public with that. And as we all know, there are a lot of cops. And I think that that was that the people who helped me in this investigation, this continuing nine year investigation, were really angry at the loss of Sean Collier. And they asked themselves if those photos had gone out, would Sean Collier be alive today? And I think it's a very valid question. Uh, if you recall, the night in the hours before John almost got killed, along with his colleagues in Watertown, there were FBI agents who were pulled over by Cambridge police officers who refused to identify themselves and refused to cooperate. Um, there was a there was a lot of activity around that that prompted, you know, a congressional inquiry, and the FBI didn't show up for it. So I don't know if we'll ever get to the to the answer Wait, of those Michelle, I, I got to stop you there. You, you, are you saying that there were FBI agents on the hunt in Cambridge and that when they were pulled over by police officers, they refused to identify themselves or tell what they were doing there? So the FBI released, officially released the photos and the video of suspect black hat, and suspect white hat at 5.20 p.m. in Copley Square Hotel in Boston. And within minutes, 911 calls started coming into the Cambridge PD saying that there were suspicious vehicles idling around the area of MIT, of Inman Square, where the brothers lived. And there was a sergeant named Rob Lowe who pulled over one of these vehicles. Like, what are you doing here? We got some complaints. We need to figure out, you know, why are you idling outside this location? And the FBI agent rolled down his rear window, flashed his badge and said, screw so Sergeant Lowe went back to the cruiser, dispatched this encounter, and the guy took off. And this sort of interaction with the FBI, and I'm sure, John, you've heard about this from your colleagues, some of the Cambridge guys, those interactions happened several times where the FBI refused to cooperate with the Cambridge PD. At one point, it turned into a car chase. You know, there was at uh, 1020, somebody actually dispatched out loud you know, these motherfuckers are here and someone's going to get hurt. And we know what happened about 10 minutes later. So there was that prompted a congressional investigation. There were people in the MIT Police Department and the Cambridge Police Department who went to Chuck Grassley, the senator, and to Congressman Bill Keating, a former prosecutor from Massachusetts. And Keating, a Democrat, and Grassley, a Republican, had bipartisan fury for the FBI and started holding hearings, but the FBI didn't show up. They still haven't shown up. You know, I think that that was supposed to be corrected after 9-11, that information was supposed to be shared between law enforcement. And when it's not, you know, you're losing all of these other eyes and ears on the ground that potentially could capture these guys. And the other thing is, is that you're endangering law enforcement because now they don't know who these guys are. And these guys were known days before the information was released. And as you said, Sean Collier may not have been killed if that information was released because these guys were from the neighborhood. They were right from around here. 
Yeah. Listen, know, they had you know, they had parking tickets in Watertown, so there's so Jahar was well known to that little area. So I think, you know, at the very least, those photos should have been shared with BPD, Watertown BTD, Cambridge PD, because once you, well, and where, look, they had an open investigation into the brothers. So somebody had to take a look at suspect Black Hat and say, hey, that's the dude I interviewed, you know, a half a dozen times at his house. And that somebody should have been the case agent that was assigned to interview him. And it's a matter of public record that the Zania family was interviewed several times before this atrocity took place. So I have a hard time believing. And I, I mean, you know, Phil and Bill, you guys are detectives. I'm a reporter. You know, even a guy who heckled you at a club cliff, you might remember them a year later if they blew up the marathon. So right there, I think that people were very suspicious about this entire narrative that they didn't know who the brothers were. You know, the thing that bothers me about that is this. Now, FBI agents are not going to be familiar with the area unless they sent an actual case agent that knew one of the Sanaya brothers. But it sounds like they were from a, a, maybe a different area, not local. And you'll want to get a hold of some local officer to see, do you know these guys? I mean, if these guys are traveling to a gym and going boxing or whatever they're doing, who's going to know better than a local cop? Uh, you know, they might know the haunts or where they hang out, or they might know something about a vehicle they're driving that maybe is not registered. Them, or so many different things. So anytime that I did an investigation, I went out of my jurisdiction to another jurisdiction. I always wanted to touch base with the local police. Number one, to let them know we were there in case the shit hit the fan, that they would know law enforcement from another agency or another jurisdiction is there. And number two, to give us a, a heads up on, you know, information about the building we're going to go to or who we're looking for, different things like that. Now, there are times when it's a sensitive case and, you know, it could be maybe uh, organized crime or something like that where you want to keep things very close to the vest because you're afraid that the people you're looking for might get a heads up from someone in a local jurisdiction. I get that. Don't get me wrong. But in this particular case, this was an all out, you know, uh, they killed all those people. They blew up the marathon and they really should have touched base with the local police. I'm, I, I can't believe that they did that. If that's true, the, what you're seeing on the screen and what you've the boxer that that's uh, Tamerlan's on Aev, just to get an idea how big he is. Child with no real job, he dealt drugs for cash. Self pity and frustrations mounted. Jahar's life, on the other hand, appeared blessed, or so it seemed. People would say he's charming. He was a social. Oh. He said, oh. no. but no one seemed to have ever had a conversation with him of any depth or length. And this is also this is like a, a, a character that a lot of immigrants will recognize. Uh, a kid who finds his role, and his role is to mirror back at you exactly what you want. It's at around this time, the year before the bombings, that Tamerlan returns to Dagestan. Islam seemed a response to his stagnant life, and he soon sought out those with extreme yearnings. Listen to this conversation recorded in Dagestan. It's Tamerlan, considering the pros and cons of jihad. 
Наша ненависть... Может, ты можешь удерживать это. А вот я, я пока не могу. Вот, у меня вот вообще гневно внутри начинается. Вот вот By the, the Russian military, uh, you know, I had a, some help from a very interesting intelligence expert recently who tried to school me a little bit on how this might have worked. And he said it's very likely that the operation that took out Tamalin's friends was carried out by the GRZ with the help of the CIA. So what you were trying to say that he was an informant for somebody? Well, Bill, I don't know. When I go, when I go home for Christmas and I'm not going to be wired up, this <laughs> Tamalin... <laughs> was on two terror watch lists. Because remember, the Russians warned us that he was running around with jihadists. They said he was in contact with people, including relatives, who were mujahideen, who wanted to kill us. And Tamalin was put on two terror watch lists in 2012, which is right after he murdered three people, we suspect, in this triple, still unsolved triple murder in Waltham, So Tamalin's a prime suspect with, you know, a source of mine called me that day and said, it looks like an Al-Qaeda training video in here. You have three guys, one of whom was Tamalin's self-described American best friend, who were nearly decapitated. The two Jewish victims were sexually mutilated. There's still drugs and money. It looks like a robbery. And Tamalin has emerged as the prime suspect in that case with another Chechen guy. But that Chechen guy... Well, he was being interviewed by an FBI agent and a couple of cops, and he flipped out on the FBI agent in a violent way. He, too, was a very dangerous MMA fighter, and he was shot dead during this interview at his Orlando apartment by an FBI agent. But when you look into the history of the FBI agent, the guy was a disgraced Oakland, California police officer collecting a full disability who somehow gets hired by the Boston FBI field office, which is, I would argue, somewhat questionable. Yeah, I mean, I, re I read that in your book. I was just going to ask you about that triple murder that he was a, a, a number one suspect in. I mean, a lot of this stuff is just so scary to think about. I just want to put but, something but the out there. Good news. Yep, go for it, though. I want to put something out there. When FBI has a confidential informant that's involved in, uh, and not only the FBI, a lot of federal agencies, I'll talk about a case that I had where I had a confidential informant. I don't want to name the agency that he was working with, but he was in heavily involved in seven different cases and he was shot and killed. And I had the case and they were allowing this individual to deal narcotics at a high, uh, like ounces of cocaine. And they did, he was doing it with the knowledge of this federal agency. And, um, he was doing it out in the open. They knew about it, but he was involved in seven cases. I don't want to say too much about them, but they were of a much higher standard uh, than dealing cocaine. That's all I'll say about it. But so my point is this, they will allow certain things to, to go on uh, when the greater good is a much bigger case that I had a U.S. attorney call me on that case and say, you got to find the guys that 
killed this this person. He, you know, we had him on several different major cases, and it wasn't narcotics. Um, and it turned out it, the way we found the body, there was a rat next to the body. There was, the person was handcuffed and it seemed like he was killed because he was an informant. It turned out it wasn't, it was something totally, uh, not to do with it. But my point is they will actually, uh, knowingly, uh, allow a, a confidential informant that's working for them at a high level, uh, be involved in criminal activity. Absolutely. Uh, Schmitty, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. I'm going to read what you wrote. Cause I think it's directed towards mostly John McClellan here. Nothing contributes so much to tranquilize the mind as a steady purpose to all that seek justice and truth. Thank you for the following your instinct. Thank you for your bravery. Love you all. Thank you very much, Schmitty. That was very kind That's of a you. Nice Thank line. you. That's a great and, line. uh, you know, I, I mean this, you know, John McClellan, I, I mean, as I said, I was, I'm so, uh, honored to meet you and, you know, like people would want to know, obviously, uh, what are you doing now? You know, but you had a 30-year police career. This incident, you probably wake up every day or go to bed every night and think about it. It's got to be in your mind. That's a, you know, this is, we all say that you, you, you do 20 or more years in law enforcement, even less than that. We all have a touch of PTSD. And I never went through, I have it myself, and I never went through an incident like that. Well, most people have it, but uh, I'm sure you must think about it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you get reminded of it a lot. You know, a lot of people, you know, I tend to forget about it. And then, you know, it gets brought up a lot. You know, we live in a small, small town and, uh, you know, I'm still doing details because uh, in Massachusetts, when you retire, you're still able to do details till you're 65. So I'm still in the uniform once in a while, uh, <laughs> out there directing traffic, you know, keeping my arms moving. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to be honest with you, though, I'm, I'm doing a lot of um, I'm a big bead squeezer. I love church. I'm in church a lot. Uh, uh, hey, I never heard that expression, bead squeezer. <laughs> that's a good one. I'm going to have to use that yeah, one. Yeah, I'm still on that one. I'm a bead it. squeezer. You got, it's got good. mine. You can have it. Uh, but, um, we use holy life. roller. We use holy roller. Holy <laughs> roller. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm having a lot of fun. I really am, you know, re reconnecting with the wife. I worked at night, 30 years a night, so uh, – I feel like I, you know, I'm really, we're really having our, um, getting to, getting to really know each other now, you know? You know, John, when, when you retire from the police department and you work like crazy hours, like, I mean, my last 10 years I was in homicide. So I worked at minimum of four to 500 hours overtime every year. And I worked that crazy four and two schedule. So it was like you didn't know when you did go home if you could get along with these people. Yep. <laughs> you didn't see you didn't see them that much, you know. It's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, yeah. But uh, I'm lucky. I have a great uh, a great partner, and I'm 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 blessed. I'm very blessed. Yeah, I can see why you're a bead squeezer. <laughs> Cliff, Cliff, are you? Uh, Cliff, are you in, involved in the bead squeezing too or no? No. No, no. My <laughs> finger's a little rusty. But you know what's funny? John McClellan said he's a bead squeezer. He's religious. The Sarnaya brothers were also religious. And it's funny how religion could be used for good or bad, you know? I mean, like a hammer, it could build a house or it could tear a house down. No, thank you. You know, Cliff, you're so right. Yeah, all through history, we see more people have died in the name of the Lord than any other thing. You know, it's it's true. It's true. I mean, 
Look, I don't want to beat down on religion because uh, no, John, I'm a, I'm a sucker for John, John may send the Archdiocese of Boston after me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of Car- Cardinals chasing me in their in their Cadillacs. No, 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 no. Hey, John, do you guys? Uh, you would generally work a solo car, or you said you had a partner, but did you guys work t- uh, in two 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 man car or solo car? Yeah, we we don't have any two man cars in our town. We we I just happened to say my partner because he was with me that night in another vehicle. Um, but no, all single all single men single officer vehicles. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, but I guess if you go to a job, you guys hook up and handle it together. So it correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I get it. I get it. They send usually two cars to each call, and yeah. then there's a, a supervisor that goes to calls to uh, different priorities. You have right. to you, you go to that call and yeah. if you need I, it or whatnot. I, I think most uh, police departments around the country are like that, unless you're in a big city where, uh, like New York, we always. I mean, there were some solo uh, assignments too when you're in uniform, but um, for the most part, it's uh, two man cars. Yeah. Uh, Cliff, Cliff or Michelle, you can answer this question. How is this incident? Um, well, but you can both answer it. How has this incident changed Boston, or has it? I Cliff? think. The, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Cliff. No, no, no. I was, go, he said, first. "Ladies, all right, Michelle, you first. Um, for me, I'm I'm always gonna just you know, Cliff talked about how Boston is different, and you can see it from the response. You know, you had like a, a New England Patriot carrying a, you know, it's funny. There were so many people who didn't want to run away from those bombings when they went off. When those blasts, you know, devastated Boylston Street, that was the response. People like launched into action. They were pulling their belts off and creating tourniquets. You know, they were cutting the straps off their purses to tie them around people's severed limbs. And, you know, it really makes you proud to be a Bostonian. But I think the thing that always brings me to tears, even when I recall it, is after that insane firefight with the Watertown PD and John McClellan coming up with that incredible maneuver and, you know, his colleagues taking fire and bombs and just absolute insanity. Everybody's lucky to be alive. But that feeling of being standing in Watertown as, as all of the Bearcats and the tanks started to pull out and all the different departments and people took to the streets and Phil and Bill, you'll remember, it's almost like after 9-11 when you were so proud to be an American, but most importantly for Bostonians, we love our city. And I can remember crying. Like I, it was a sense of relief that the bomber had been captured. I was glad the older brother was dead. I almost wished, I hate to say it. And I, and this is, you know, there's a part of me that wishes that, that Jahar had stayed in that boat just a little bit longer. And it would have saved a lot of people the agony of, you know, this ongoing Supreme court battle right now about the death penalty, because this is going to go on for, at least a decade, it's going to cost tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer monies. This kid is suing us right now. You know, so he's sitting around a jail cell suing us. He's collecting a stimulus check during COVID. That's That's unbelievable. That is disgusting. So in a way, I just wish there could have been a happier ending if he had just, you know, if we had just left him on that boat for another hour or so. You think he would have let out with the train? I mean, he had been shot multiple times. He was bleeding profusely. Um, you know, when he was staggering on the side of the boat, I mean, it was wild. You know, Billy Evans, who admits he grabbed he grabbed a Watertown cop, like, take me to this house. When, you know, David Henenberry, who was the owner of God Rest His Soul, of that boat, you know, when he called 911, 
you know, he, he I mean, just think about it, this guy. And that's why when I guffawed a little bit, cause there was so many news stories in the globe and Rolling Stone. And there was so many stories like the poor brother, you know, the floppy here teen who followed Tamerlan down the street. And all of these people were trying to make Jahar look like he was this hapless victim of his intimidating older brother. But the truth was very apparent when you saw what he wrote on that boat. As he's bleeding out, he's writing this anti-American manifesto. Know that you are looking, that you are dealing with men, jihadi, who look down the barrel of your gun and see heaven. So this was a guy who believed in the jihad, who believed in punishing America. He wrote it on the side of the boat. In fact, he carved it into the wood on the boat and then used a fire extinguisher to make sure that people saw the big bleep you. And the day that he was arraigned, he literally stood up in his holding cell and flipped the bird into the camera. This is an, this is an unrepentant, dangerous little savage that is continually being painted as a victim and it drives me out of my mind. And so when I say that, I know it sounds cold hearted, but it would have saved us literally, the costs of his trials, the two, first two trials are so exorbitant, they're under seal. The cost of his ongoing appeal, for which there are there are attorneys from all over the country who fly to Colorado and fly all over the place on us to defend this kid, it's under seal. That's how expensive it is. They're never going to tell us how much this is all costing us. I just think that it would have been for the victims who have to face this kid every single time he's in the news and think about the, how much of their own money is being spent to defend him. I think it would have been better off if he had just bled out in that boat. Yeah, no, hey, we have no uh, sympathy for that guy. Cliff Moylan, if you can remember the question. How did this change Boston? How did this affect Boston? Yes, yeah. I think it affected Boston and um, – Boston collectively turned a minus into a plus, um, which has been the pattern of people from Boston to do. Um, people who grew up in Boston earn the right to say they're from Boston because of it's a tough place. And um, all of the things that have happened, you know, I mean, historically in Boston, I mean, it, it's added to the character and that city has collectively persevered. Um Sergeant John McClellan and the Watertown PD make me proud to be from Boston. They make me proud to be American also. Um, and there's an expression that I'm fond of, and it is this. You go through stuff and you grow through stuff. Though it was an unpleasant thing, I mean, we all came out better for it because we made ourselves better for it. And um, I don't love that this happened, but I love how we handled it. And um, well said. I, you know, you know something, Cliff. You're so right because I think that John McClellan probably thinks that was horrible. But you know something, I lived to it. Now I'm glad it happened because I did live to it because it changed me as a man and and showed me who I am as a man. I'm sure you knew you were a man before that, but it changes your life. And I heard that even Bill Belichick uses that technique with the car now for his running backs. <laughs> they, drive the car, they drive the car right through the line and they hide behind the... <laughs> it took you guys a while to get the joke it was like you were on tape delay there I was like please laugh laugh no, I when, you, when you go to other parts of the country and you meet somebody from Boston I mean they'll they're 
ready to tell everybody in the room. I'm from Boston. I'm from Boston. Dorchester, Lower Mill, St. Greg's Parish. I'm from Boston. And it's because of this, because of things like this. And I mean, I, I don't want to whip out a history book, but Boston, it, the city's been through some shit. Yeah. No. My mother told me to watch my mouth tonight. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you doing okay. a great okay. job. You know, you know I, just, I just want, before I forget to do this, I just want to go to a quick uh, commercial. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe you know, Murray, John... The John, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, what you guys did in Watertown uh, is is so amazing, but yet it's not it's not unique. And, and I mean that by saying that small town police all over this nation put their lives at risk for strangers every single day. I mean, you guys went above and beyond, beyond what almost any cop in, in you know, in the history of this nation has done. But my whole point of that is that, and then you get this whole defund the police movement and you see it just, it, and I, and I'm, I know, look, people say, oh, don't get political. There's no such thing as not getting political when you're talking about the police. Cop, police and politics go hand in hand because we are victims of politics and we're victims of poor decisions by politicians, you know, but having said all of that, you knowing that you guys went into that, you know, balls to the wall. And, you know, it makes everyone that, that wears a uniform proud. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, again, uh, and I'll say it till the day I die. I mean, uh, I, I think a lot of police officers would be very happy to be put in my shoes that night. I, 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 you know, I, I feel that my guys did a great job being a supervisor. I had some young kids out there and they did unbelievable work and, uh, and to none of us to get hurt and not to have to call any of their wives or their mothers or their parents to tell them, Hey, so-and-so's in the hospital or so-and-so's dead. Um, never wanted had to make that call or go into one of these houses that were littered, littered with bullets and bomb fragments. No one in the houses got hurt. Um, we're just blessed, absolutely blessed. And I, I just want to thank again, Every police officer who came that night, I wish I could have a beer with every single one of you. God bless you. Thank you. And please, everybody stay safe. You know, you know, John, one of the things that um, that I always like to say is that I don't like frequently hang out with cops. I, I just I don't hang out a lot, period. But when I do go out or I, I like to be around cops because I, it makes me feel safe for some reason. And why, you know, do I think I'm going to get attacked by seven terrorists? No, but I just feel because of that camaraderie and that spirit of what we've all been through, the common experience, that I feel very comfortable and I feel very safe being around other cops. And I don't know, Philly, do you feel the same way? Oh, 100%. Um, I I'm the kind of... Uh, uh police officer. It's in my blood, I say. And uh, so when I'm around other cops, it does give me uh, 
a sense of security. And uh, like I go into Brooklyn a couple of times a week, I go visit my cousins at their restaurant and uh, a lot of cops stop in there. And when it's late and it's dark or it's a shitty night or something like that. And I see a radio car pull up. It just gives me that extra little bit of feeling that, you know, uh, everything's good. You know, if, if, <laughs> if there's bad guys in the area, they're going to see the radio car and they're going to think twice about doing anything stupid over here, you know? So you know, if, uh, in fact, Phil, don't, don't we call certain locations in Brooklyn? We say, is that a one or two clip location? Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this place is not far from a two clip. If it's really dangerous, it's a two clip location. It, you it's know? just outside of Coney Island and it's very close to a housing project. So, so that's why I, I, I use that analogy, but yeah, you made a good point, Bill. Yeah. Yeah, being being listen, the fund the police thing is a ridiculous notion. I mean, I've had you know bad guys like Sammy the Bogravano say it's ridiculous. I mean, there's there's somebody that's a bad guy in his life, did a lot of bad things, and even he said, you know, come on, you're crazy, you, you can't defund the police. So uh, that's you a good question right there. There was a bumper sticker that was uh, popular in San Francisco in the early 1970s that said. If someone steals your car, uh, don't call a hippie. Call a cop. <laughs> you might be able to hear about that. I mean, that kind of sums it up. I mean, who are yeah, you yeah. doing your call? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's, it's crazy. Uh, Mich uh, Michelle, I, uh, the question on the screen, and I know you'll probably hit this out of the park. Yeah. What do you think about Jahar's apology letter at his trial? You know, it's interesting because um, – one, so at the federal courthouse, the staff, the security are often retired cops. And, you know, think about it. These are the people who day in and day out have to see this punk smirking at the victims, you know, doodling on his pad. His lawyers were rubbing his back and he was kind of ignoring them. At one point, my good friend, Rebecca Gregory, who lost her leg and her son got badly injured, you know, she said, look at me because she was given her victim impact statement and Jahar refused to look at her. Uh, when he, when first we had the dead man walking nun who testified that he was a changed man, none of which there was any evidence for just by his demeanor alone in court. You know, he, he pissed off the former police commissioner, Willie Gross, so badly that Willie mumbled under his breath as he passed the defense table, you maggot, which obviously <laughs> what I, I think I wasn't sad about, you know, yeah. as you could see, because I could read his lips. But that apology letter was insincere because of his actions. And one of those security officers told me after he was found guilty and sentenced to death that all of his attorneys were weeping. So they drag him out in his shackles and he's, he's in this little room afterwards with his attorneys and everyone's weeping but him. And I think that sums they're it up. Weeping. Like this is, they were weeping. Well, remember, yeah, I know. the first time Judy Clark ever lost a case. You know what, but Michelle, you know why you know why they were weeping? Because the gravy train of his trial was over and yeah, they were weren't gonna get paid three fifty or four fifty an hour, whatever attorneys get paid by the government. At, you know, I they were staying at the Intercontinental. What kind of government employee Whoa. gets put up at the the Intercontinental? So they were walking over to the courthouse for the Intercontinental and you know. It, it, it's still a gravy train. There are still countless attorneys collecting a big fat blank check it's to disgusting. defend this guy. It so his really... apology letter to answer the question, I don't think anyone was buying it because he didn't look actions. And I'm sure Cliff is going to come up with a beautiful word of wisdom to some of what I'm saying right now, but there are, there are actions and then there were words. 
and Jahar's actions throughout this entire debacle. I mean, even the fact that people continue to say he followed his brother. He had a secret Twitter account that was created long before the Boston Marathon. And on Patriots Day 2012, he tweeted this ominous threat from that secret jihadist account saying, wait until you see the marathon next year. And I'm misquoting it, but it was something that was threatening that he did an entire year before he unleashed that carnage on Boylston Street in our city, which, you know, Cliff described it very well. It was, um, it was a horrible time, but just like 9-11, it, it showed us the best. It's, it's the worst of an action that shows us what people are capable of, what the best people can bring us. And I think well, we saw that after 9-11. Michelle, did, Michelle, that's, that's, that's policing. Policing, you see the best of humanity and you see the absolute worst of humanity. And uh, we lived that during our whole careers. And uh, the, good, the good outweighs the bad. Thank God there's more good people than bad people. You know what? It baffles me how good America was to these guys and how much they hated it in return. Yeah. And that's kind of what's permeating, you know, the United States from what I can tell right now. The people who have the most to be grateful for hate America the most. Yep. Very I mean, you know what? this is this entire family never had a job. They were all on welfare from the time they arrived. And that what did they, they lived come in was paid for by Section 8. And they, yeah. they came from a very, very rough situation. It's amazing how you could be so, uh, have so much hatred towards, you know, like it's like biting the hand that feeds you, you know, it's just, it's just really amazing. And there's, there's, I don't want to mention the person's name, but there's people in Congress that were saved by this country and now they hold a position and they <laughs> actually hate the country. And I think everybody that knows anything about politics knows who I'm talking about. I but definitely know it, who you're it, talking about. It's definitely, it's, it's, disgusting that they they lied and cheated their way to a position and they literally hate our country so i, I just i don't know if it's it might be what bill said earlier it might be a religious thing it's just uh it's just a a, a hatred that it, i mean look at the hatred that these two had for our country look at the hatred i mean he he, he was running towards the gunfire uh uh tamalin and when he ran out of bullets, he threw the gun. I mean, that was that's something from a movie. It's like make believe, yeah. you know, and he did it. So, And, you know, John, I love the story of the 61-year-old sergeant that ran and tackled him. I mean, that's a yeah. damn – I think I think Belichick <laughs> should be looking for him to give him a, give him a job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Though I am no psychologist, I do believe that part of Tamerlan's hatred for the United States was his denial of being allowed to fight for the U.S. Olympic boxing team, yeah, that I mean, probably was well, the that turned him. That could be. Part I think that that is what turned him. Cliff, you're right because look, the the if you read Mayhem, I think you'll you you can agree with this conclusion or not. But it's pretty apparent the conclusion is is that somebody made Tamlin's and I have a promise, and that promise was you help us, we help you. He was incredibly motivated to become a citizen. He participated in a in a photo essay at BU called "Will Box the Passport." He was desperate to fight for the U.S. Olympic teams, and he was pretty good. He might have been able to actually do it, and then he got screwed over. And you know, this was this was a case where somebody was supposed to hold his hand and make sure that everything went smoothly at USCIS. You know, there were some very, very dangerous people taken off the planet with his help in in Russia. So I think he was made a promise, 
And when he got screwed over, over and over again at USCIS, in his view, he got mad and he got even. And it was very embarrassing. In the Chechen faith, there's a little saying, it is better to be a dog than the youngest son. And the fact that Jahar was a US citizen, which makes me sick, because he pledged allegiance to our country on September 11th, 2012, at the Boston Garden. That small fact is so revolting to me. But yeah, Jahar was a citizen, which he should have been stripped of. I wish the prosecution went after treason charges because then he wouldn't be collecting a check. He wouldn't be entitled to this exorbitant defense because he wouldn't be an American citizen. But because he took that oath, September 11th, 2012, think about that. And months later, he he commits this atrocity against the, his country that he swore allegiance to. Uh, it just what I think it would have also saved us a lot of aggravation if he had been stripped of his citizenship. It's like they're sticking it right up our butts. And you would think, based on what you just said, that the government would learn from Osama bin Laden, that he basically turned on us when we pulled out of the uh, the, the fight that was going on in Afghanistan. And he declared war on us, and nobody took him seriously. And it sounds uh, familiar, though. You know, the story sounds Bill, like it's very. It's interesting that you should say that, because if you look at the connections that Tamerlan's family has to the CIA, it's the same dude. It's Graham Fuller. Graham Fuller, who is the father-in-law of the Zanaya brothers' uncle, Graham Fuller was one of the guys who believed in arming Osama bin Laden to fight the Russians in the first place. And this this ideology that he continued to espouse is how the entire family got into the U.S. He was the station chief in Ankara, Turkey, when they applied for and received asylum. So they got hooked up really fast and really well by the very guy who was behind arming Osama bin Laden and training him with our Unbe weapons. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know? I mean, I hope I'm not going too far off topic, but you know what I've noticed that is a very, um, it's kind of a connecting link between a lot of uh, terrorists, like Osama bin Laden, the Weather Underground, even the Sarnia brothers. They come from privilege. Yeah. Yep. These are all that's very true. People that never that's really a good point. Him. It's a great point. Yeah, I mean, look at if you Hamlet look with the around uh, in a Mercedes. I mean, he he always had money. Mm -hmm. Either he was a well-paid informant or he had some other side business going on, just like his drug dealing little brother Jahar. If, he had a lot of time look to at, work out. <laughs> if you look at the mayhem that took place across the United States after uh, last summer with the with the riots. Most of those people were trust fund babies or kids with money that mm -hmm. went and caused all the mayhem, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like, like your book says mayhem. And you know, they, how are they coming up with uh, all these different weapons and, and uh, masks and, and tear gas masks and, and bear spray. That shit costs money. They, they, somebody was funding them and uh, maybe it was because they had some, uh, they came from wealth and they were able to do these things and, and cause all that destruction and mayhem that went on for those, uh, that, that whole summer of 20, 19. And you know, I know guys, someone's going to come at me for saying this, but I'm going to say it. Go when you pay enough taxes, you're not going to go around uh, preaching socialism. You're 100% correct, Cliff. You know, you know that's that's you know? Uh, that's so true. Look at I, that I used to look, and you know, Cliff, what the government's taking is it's too heartbreaking. Dude. Cliff, when I would meet all these young comics when I was doing stand-up comedy, the entitlement these little scummers had. You know, like, oh, I I should get comprehensive health care. I go, why don't you get yourself a comprehensive job? 
or join, <laughs> or, 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 or join the damn Marine Corps and become a man, you little piece of shit. Right. You know what I'm I mean? Gonna, I'm going to quote my buddy Sergeant McClellan right now. He said to me the other day, these kids grew up on – no, these kids were born on third base and walk around like they hit a triple. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, so you want to hear something? That's what someone said about the Cuomo brothers. They were both born oh, on third. They're lovely, those two. They were both born. On, I don't want to get into that. We already did a show on them. I just oh. want to mention someone in the chat said, and I'll acknowledge it, today is the 80th anniversary of uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the right. seven, December 7, 1941. So I, I just want to, uh, you know, patriotically mention that. Uh, but, you know, guys, we're, uh, we're at an hour and 16 minutes. So, I, so what I always do is I give everyone – their last words, and when I say that, that doesn't mean go into a uh, a ten minute uh, <laughs> a ten minute speech. <laughs> but you get you get you got like thirty seconds to forty five seconds. Michelle, your first last words. I just have to. Apply. I'm very grateful to have people like all of you in my life. These are the listen. This is when you start to believe in humanity. When you listen to the stories of NYPD detectives, and you know I have the privilege of knowing John a little bit and the people that he associates with. And Cliff is a friend of mine now. I'm just, I'm grateful to be surrounded by good people. Thank you, Michelle. Cliff, last words. Last words. I owe a big debt of gratitude to my buddy, and um, Sergeant John McClellan, who I had the honor of portraying, um, as well as the rest of the Watertown PD and Boston area law enforcement. Um, Curtis Bellafiore and Matt Kutcher, they played Officer Reynolds and Cologne. Uh, I'm going to speak for them. I feel think that they feel the same way. Um, I had a great time tonight, guys. I'm just going to show my shirt. A friend of mine designed Go it. Go ahead, man. <laughs> great shirt. I love it. For my I neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, January 14th, uh, the Ray Donovan full-length feature film. Please keep an eye out for me. Bill, I love you. Michelle, an Congrats. absolute pleasure seeing you. Cliff, it's always great to see you. I've followed you for a very long time. John, I'm sure I'll talk to you later in the week. Thank you for having me. John, Sergeant John McLellan, the star of the show and uh, a man that I was privileged to meet. Uh, Last words. Sarge, thanks thanks again for inviting me on. Uh, Detective, thanks again. Michelle, nice to see you. Cliff, uh, thanks. Thanks. It was great being on with you guys. Uh, I can't wait till we can get together and actually sit together in a nice big steakhouse and have a big fat steak 100 so, uh, god bless you guys um it's on me i'll bring i'll bring the cash no way uh, that's right no it's not on you we should be paying no for you your money's no good i'm gonna get the zonaev brothers to pay for it <laughs> that is you know, i wouldn't mind that letter of apology i could use for toilet paper if I yeah, yeah exactly yeah. phil Gr- phil grimaldi less words my last words are this. During my career, I met many, many famous people, actors. I shook hands with presidents. Uh, since I'm doing the podcast, I've met a lot of other famous people, and I'm delighted every one of them. I really appreciate meeting them. But, John, you hold a special place in my heart. You're a real hero. I thank you for coming on tonight. I really, really appreciate tonight's show. Uh, Cliff, I, I'm so glad that I got to meet you, too. Bill spoke a lot about you. Michelle, we have friends in common. and. Uh, the best part of this book that you sent me, when you wrote in the front, you said, I love your outrage at injustice with respect, Michelle McPhee. And I really think that kind of sums it up. And uh, thank you for coming on, guys. It was just a great episode tonight. I actually like what Michelle Michelle wrote in mine. She said, Bill, you are definitely 
the most handsome guy on police off the cuff. <laughs> I far. <laughs> I think I said hot. <laughs> anyway, my guys, my last words are again, John McClellan has been my honor and privilege to meet you. You are definitely law enforcement royalty, law enforcement gold. And all you folks out there that listened, thank you so much. We have so privileged to have so many great followers of police off the cuff, real crime stories. And guys, uh, you know, just have a, a wonderful night and uh, be safe out there. Stay God safe, everyone. Bye. God bless. One episode, just ain't enough.